Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is a multi-pronged attack on abortion rights. Abortion is not health care. If we pull the plug on abortion, it's going to be a hot mess. We debate some of the anti-abortion legislation and policy at bat and take a look at what the future could hold, both in the courts and beyond. Then, check out this headline. Philly's getting a women's pro hoops team. Yup, and they're looking for players. I'll tell you more about that coming up. Finally, We'll talk about a new effort to help male survivors of intimate partner violence. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Cherry Gregg. It's Women's History Month, and the focus is women's reproductive rights. In recent weeks, the U.S. Supreme Court saved Roe v. Wade, the seminal case that grants rights to abortion. But pro-lifers are attacking the right on all fronts. This week, the Trump administration proposed a new rule that would strip more than $200 million in federal Title X funding from clinics linked to abortion. You have some conservatives who call themselves pro-life, but they want to cut the Medicaid program. They want to cut family planning. They want to cut all kinds of services. That's Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey. He voted this week to support the abortion survivors bill, which would require life-saving care be provided to infants born alive after an abortion. That bill failed, but it's one of many types being introduced nationwide wide. So what's the future look like for abortion rights? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Christine Flower. She's an attorney and columnist and conservative talk show host here in Philadelphia. We also have Yaya Rivera, a reproductive justice and reproductive health care advocate. And finally, we have Neil Devins. He's a professor at William and Mary Law School. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Hey, Cherry. Thank you so much for having us. Happy Abor- to be here. Abortion rights have been in the headlines lately. We now have a conservative majority Supreme Court. Professor What's the current law of the land when it comes to abortion? Well, since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, women have had a constitutional right to terminate their pregnancy between 1973 and today. The court has made changes in precisely what that protection is. So today you are allowed to impose regulations that do not pose an undue burden on the right to terminate. The meaning of undue burden is up for grabs, and there's a lot of debate as to what is and is not an undue burden. That's one of the things that came up this week, because in recent days, the Trump administration proposed changing the Title X grants, which would separate family planning services from abortion. Yashira, how would this impact reproductive rights? I feel like there's a lot of confusion to begin with. Yeah. Title X funded are facilities that provide funding predominantly to women who um, cannot afford basic reproductive health care. I means, you know, going for uh, birth control all the way up to um, mm-hmm. getting a mammogram and a lot of important screenings. Title X funding does not even fund abortions unless under severe cases, um, which is uh, the, the um, potentially the death of the mother or instances of rape or incest, if I'm not mistaken, um, which are all very, in that instance, uncommon. Usually abortions do have to be paid out of pocket or through insurance, depending on the situation. In a sense, I feel like this is another loophole to make it even more complicated for women to get basic um, health needs. And so, Christine, what do you, how do you view this proposed change? We have to disentangle the idea of reproductive health, reproductive rights, birth control from abortion. I know that, that 
this position is not shared by many people who support abortion rights. But I think when we're talking about Title X and we're talking about birth control and we're talking about reproductive health, the health of women, that's something that we can all agree on. I think that the vast Mm. majority of Americans do not oppose birth control, have no problem whatsoever with Planned Parenthood to the extent that we stop at the line of abortion. Abortion is different. Abortion, to those of us who are pro-life or who are anti-abortion, if you want to use that, that phrase, abortion is not health care unless it's a therapeutic situation. Whereas, as Yaya mentioned, there are cases where the mother's health is in danger, the mother's life is in danger. I absolutely agree that in those cases, you have to, again, disentangle that from elective abortions. And could you describe quickly, Professor, the tension between the woman's right and this the, the, the right of the, the unborn child? The court recognizes that the state has an interest in protecting potential life throughout the pregnancy. And there is authority for federal or state government to be involved uh, in, in that respect. Different states have different policies. Blue states, states with Democratic majorities, uh, tend to focus their efforts on protecting the rights of the pregnant woman and giving her the freedom uh, to choose throughout the pregnancy. Um, Obviously, there are restrictions at the end of pregnancy in most states. Other states put more emphasis on the rights of potential life and are willing to impose greater restrictions and limitations on abortion access to women. So it ranges quite a lot from state to state. Tell your point of view, Yaya. Both of you have opposing viewpoints on this tension. I personally feel that abortion is reproductive health care. I think that it's incredibly important for women to have control over their bodies for a magnitude of reasons. Um, I mean, it is their body. I mean, it is their real estate. There could be a lot of complications throughout pregnancy. The United States has one of the highest maternal death rates than any other developed nation. So putting that into consideration, um, a lot of women live in poverty. So I feel that it's 100% the woman's choice. I feel that too many people themselves fight battles that the general public are not open to. And that's a decision that they need to have with themselves and their medical professional. And I think it's really important to keep those options open because history has shown that regardless if these services are offered or not, women are going to find methods to do so, um, which also put their lives at extreme risk. So I think that it's important to women to have the, the free will to have that choice. And you, Christine, said before you agree that there should be some choice, but only in limited, very limited circumstances. Extremely limited circumstances. Roe versus Wade. I was 11 in 1973 when that decision was uh, decided. And I've lived most of my life with, you know, in the shadow of Roe. And Roe sort of took the it was it was it was a rather artificial construct of the three trimesters of the first you know the first 3 months the second 3 months and the third 3 months and then applying different laws and different standards to each of those months to each of those trimesters but there was the understanding that as you got further along in the pregnancy this was uh, it was it was easier for society to see the unborn or the fetus, the unborn child, as a child, as a human, and as deserving of protection. What I think has happened is that the pendulum swings back and forth. There was a period of time when there was an attempt on some very restrictive abortion laws, abortion legislation, meaning that there there were attempts to eliminate abortion altogether. And there still are in a yeah. lot of in yeah. a lot of the red states. Mm-hmm. However, I have also noticed, and I think that this is has been triggered by President Trump's control of the Supreme Court now, there has been an attempt on the part of numerous states a successful attempt on the part of New York 
uh, unsuccessful attempt on the part of Virginia, uh, so far unsuccessful in Vermont and Nevada, and now Illinois is attempting to have laws which would really open up the right of a woman to have an abortion at almost any stage of the pregnancy, including and up until birth. And I know people push back against that, but a companion case on the day that Roe versus Wade was decided was called Doe versus Bolton. And that stated that the health of a woman also includes her mental health. So there are cases where if a woman is in her ninth month of pregnancy and is is seriously in extremis from a psychological standpoint, under the law, she could conceivably be able to have author to get that authorization necessary under the law to have an abortion, even if the fetus is viable. I know people say that's an extreme situation, but that's legally possible. Yeah. Yeah. But the one thing I do, I, I feel that is a little dangerous, especially with the statement about New York and how they open borders and everybody is mentioning that it's up until birth abortion. There's so much legislation prior to that that it makes it very complicated for it to even get to that point unless the mother's life is at risk or mm-hmm. the child is going to so be stillborn. So it's not born. like you could just decide no, 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 one no, no, day no. At, at nine months that you're just going to... And yeah. like, you know what? I'm over this. Nope, bye. That's not the case. It has to be extreme. Not to mention very few doctors nationally perform abortion after 26 weeks. In most places, it's below that. So when you speak about up until birth, I feel like a lot of the messaging and media surrounding that is a little dangerous because it's not really looking at the fine print about the... The stipulations that have to happen in order for that to even even get to that point. Um, and, and let me interject mm-hmm. here. Yeah, go um, right ahead, <laughs> Professor. Yeah, so it's important to understand that there are two debates on the abortion issue, and one debate is a straight-up policy debate, which is what we're hearing right now, which is the prerogative of the states to liberalize abortion laws. And I don't think there's any constitutional limitation on state authority to provide greater rights for women's access to abortion. That's not a legal debate. That's purely a policy debate. The legal debate occurs in the other direction, where limitations are placed on the exercise of the right and how far those limitations can go without violating the right outright. So I think it's very important to recognize that when we talk about abortion, part of the conversation is a legal question as to how much abortion rights should be protected by the Supreme Court, how far the state can go. But there's a separate question, which is equally important, arguably more important, which is the policy question as to what should states do, what should the federal government do. The decision of the federal government not to fund abortions Mm. is within the prerogative of the federal government because of their control over the appropriations process. But the consequences of that are profoundly important. And that's an important policy question, even though it may not be much of a legal question. Because if if you defund uh, access, then you pretty much go back to the past and reverse a lot of where we've come. And so let's give well, a little history lesson. A lot of us, lot women, of us women, think women that without. we should reverse where we've come from. I yeah. think, I mean, and this is Christine, I think we've gone in a direction we saw recently, just this past week, the Born Again, the Born Again, the, um, the Survivor of Abortion Act, the Born Alive Survivor of Abortion Protection Act. And that was an attempt because of... I think it was in reaction in some ways Mm -hmm. to some of the Mm -hmm. um, more liberalizing state legislation. If a child, and there are cases where children have survived abortions, botched abortions, in Pennsylvania we know about Kermit Gosnell and what happened with him, that law would have simply, that bill would have simply required that triage be given to that 
that and, but ab- that and that bill child. did not it, it did it did not it did not make it out of yeah 44 democrats uh voted against it three democrats voted in favor and you know the the um professor was talking about policy it it is a policy issue but it's also a political issue and we see that from the divide there all republicans voted in favor of it except for i think lisa murkowski who didn't vote uh and she happens to be pro-choice um the vast majority of Democrats voted against it, except yeah. for the three that yeah. you know call themselves mm-hmm. pro life. Mm-hmm. So I mean I just I just wanted to make that point there as well. Policy does play into this. And I and I agree one hundred percent with Yaya. We you know, this this is a very important health issue that shouldn't be thrown up here with sound bites and rhetoric and we shouldn't be making this into something where it's and you're and I'm really glad you have us on here. It shouldn't be just the right of the woman to do what she wants with her body or you're gonna kill that baby. No, those are slogans. We have to talk about what's the impact of abortion and our approach to abortion in society on women and on children. As we talk about funding that is being taken away or could be taken away, if we talk about other types of restrictions, because the the U.S. Supreme Court case and the Supreme Court ruling just basically stalls <laughs> any ruling on this while the lower courts figure things out. But that would have left only one provider in that entire state of Louisiana that could provide abortions. That type of policy decision, though, has a real world impact. And could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I just really wanted to two seconds go back there. I feel like there's a lot of bills that are being written and tried to be passed when there's already legislation in effect that kind of counteracts what they're doing. Um, So that's one thing. But in regards to the question that you just asked, yeah. in regards to, you know, policy, you know, Title 10 funding is has like the worst label right now. And I feel that when people hear that terminology, it means abortion. And we really have to get to the point to separate that because Title 10 funding is not abortion. Yes, there are some Title 10 funded facilities that provide abortions, but they're very few and far in between. And I want the listeners to comprehend that Title 10 funding facilities isn't just Planned Parenthood. There are a plethora of other institutions or facilities that prov- that have Title 10 funding that do life-saving work. And I am here in front of you all today because a Title 10 funded facility saved my life by catching a potential life-threatening blood disorder. And that same Title 10 funded facility found my sister's breast cancer at an early stage. Title 10 funded facilities give women in a level of income the opportunity to seek the yearly care that they deserve to get those yearly pap smears, those breast exams, um, birth control. And what's happening is when you go to a Title 10 funded facility under this like some organization are calling it a gag rule. Physicians cannot even have the conversation with their patients about having abortion as an option that they can't even refer them to another location if that is what they want. So it's, it comes a really, you know, fine line of doctors at, at a certain point. I'm not a physician, so I can't speak on their part, but as a patient, mm-hmm. they're going against their oath to give me what they feel is best for me in an instance when I'm pregnant because of the funding that they receive as an establishment. So I find that to be very problematic, especially for women and and men who live in a rate of poverty that cannot afford to go to the facility that the other several million of people go to. to. And so you think about this. I mean, this is it seems like the issue of abortion is being uh, challenged on multiple levels. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing right now. On one hand, we have the Title X funding. Uh, On another hand, you have challenges going to the Supreme Court potentially and the Supreme Court could possibly weigh in on this with this 5-4 majority conservative court. And then you also have bills like the 
uh, abortion survivors bills that are trying to be passed as well that would uh, expand rights to unborn children. The Supreme Court, you know, may overturn Roe, but probably will not overturn Roe. Um, Chief Justice Roberts in the Louisiana case voted with the liberals, the Democrats on the court. And people have said that he might save it, yeah. uh, Louisiana law. Um, It may well be that the court embraces broader state authority, and it's to be expected that the court will embrace broader state authority um, with uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, now being in the middle of the court ideologically. But people have predicted the Supreme Court's overturning Roe many times before, and uh, it hasn't happened yet. And uh, I think time will tell what the Supreme Court will do. I don't think we should be presumptuous as to what the Supreme Court will do, uh, although um, I think there is reason to suspect that the court will expand state authority from the uh, last major abortion decision involving Texas and whole women's health. Jerry, I think um, I, I tend to agree with the professor that in my lifetime, I'm not going to see Roe versus Wade overturned, even though that that's something that, you know, I, I've made no secret of the fact that that's something that I would like to see. I do think, though, that this court as currently constituted, even with John Roberts in in the ideological center, that we will see a chipping away as we did in the Carhartt case um, with. Uh, with respect to a certain form of late term, what was was once called partial birth abortion. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that while there will not be a blank overturning of Roe, and by the way, you know, you all know, we all know that even if Roe is overturned, abortion then reverts completely and entirely and totally to the states. So it doesn't mean that abortion is criminalized or, you know, banned. It just means that the states will then have more control. Um, I tend to disagree with the professor. I, I, I don't know if this court is going to expand or give over more rights to the states to expand um, their, you know, their their operations and their standards for abortion. And Yaga, you, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I would like to add um, real quick that the states are, are already trying to make moves, even in Pennsylvania. Um, I unfortunately didn't bring the House bills with me. But in April of last year and December of 2017, there were two uh, quote-unquote abortion bans that were passed in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, the one in April and December um, overturned by Senator, uh, excuse me, Governor Wolf. And what we have to understand that states are attacking abortion on a state level yearly. It yeah. happened here in Pennsylvania just last year where they were saying in the terminology that, you know, you can only have abortion up until 16 weeks and not, you know, up until the mid-20 weeks. So there's always attacks. Right. And the yeah. attacks, and, and, and they, the and legislation they, about um, the Down syndrome. You're absolutely correct. right. And, and, that, and that was the, that was the one of <laughs> yeah, them was over yeah. the Down syndrome. One was over the quote-unquote late-term abortion. Right. Um, so we, we have to understand that legislation already passed in Pennsylvania for this. It's just yeah, that the gov- it has yeah. been vetoed. Yeah. So, um, again, and I feel when I looked at both of those bills, and I spoke on this before, it's, it's really fine, like really little tiny ink that kind of tries to um, make abortion even more strict and less accessible to people that want it later in their pregnancy. But medically, from what I've read, again, I'm not a medical professional, that also can be dangerous because when it comes to abnormalities of the fetus, you don't know until later t- later time throughout the pregnancy. So it would make it harder for women to have even that choice if there's something medically wrong with 
the fetus. Yeah. So I feel that 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 too is dangerous because now women are having the choice in some instances to carry a term a pregnancy to full term, knowing that the the child possibly may not live, or um, they'll have severe um, disabilities or will only live a couple days. So I feel like we have to take those instances into consideration because miscarriage, at, you know, the second and third trimester is a lot more common than what people think. When I speak to people who are pro life outside of my work, because you know I do respect your vision and I do respect you know that you're here next to me, but we have to understand that the legislation that's being passed, there's no green line. It's either you don't have it at all and it's merely impossible to do anything or you have it and there's rules and regulations to do it. Is it possible that maybe meeting meeting grounds, you know, using yeah, advisors yeah. of medicine and science? Because we have to understand if we pull the plug on abortion, it's going to be a hot mess. Yeah. And I will say <laughs> I interviewed uh, Senator Bob Casey this week and he's considered too pro-life for people who are pro-choice, but but too pro-choice for people who are pro-life. And he seems to have found this middle ground yeah. where he thinks there should be Title 10 funding. There should be the full funding to deal with whatever issues that women have. At the same time, he also believes that babies born viable should be a, should get full protection. He has, is that the middle ground? I think so. Um, I, but I think it's it's going to be difficult to get to that middle ground. And I think he's basically representing what his father's position was, you know, Gov- Governor Bob Casey Sr., which is the whole of life, or as Cardinal Bernardin once said, the seamless garment of life. From birth to death, we protect and we, we respect and we support both the mother and the child. And I think that's what he sees as his mission to both provide social services for mothers, pregnant women, for the babies after they're born. And, and And I have to say, and I'll be very honest... A very legitimate criticism of those on my side of the of the divide, those who are pro birth, pro birth in some ways. They are, you know, they they want to cut funding for social services for babies and for mothers. You know, WIC and all of and this. And then these babies are born and, exactly. Yes. So so pro life. You know, you can be anti abortion is different from being pro life. To yeah. be pro life, that means you have to be pro life at every stage of the development of that child beyond birth. And so I think that's what Casey is trying to do and show yeah. that there is that happy medium and, in there. And is that a place that other that you guys could get? Is there is that a middle ground or is that not enough? See, me personally, I will always I feel that I will always be pro-choice because I feel, again, there's so too many gray areas. You know, there's sexual assault. There is um, abuse. There are so many heinous things that happen in this world to women that can cause pregnancy. And it should be no one's choice except that woman yeah. to make that decision. If somebody can tell me tomorrow that sexual harassment ends 100% when we know in the United States one out of four women have been sexually assaulted, then I'll say, all right, cool, then we're good. But that isn't going to happen yeah. in, in a real world. So I, I solely believe yeah. women should have control over their Sherry, bodies. can I just jump and in jump one quick second? There's certain aspects of the abortion issue that are just uh, incapable of resolution politically because the views of pro-choice and pro-life advocates can't be harmonized. And I think maybe where the energy should be spent as much as possible are instances where the views can be harmonized, like the care of newborns and other things that you all seem to uh, agree on. And the common ground and the energy perhaps should be pursued on those things where common ground is possible uh, and where common ground is not possible, if I were an advocate, I would just not engage in those areas where common ground is not possible. Yeah, and because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Now, this debate has gone on 
since the beginning of time. I mean, and it's been it's getting hotter and hotter as we look to the future, specifically to 2020. Will abortion be a top issue? Your prediction. And we'll go around. We'll start with you, Professor, and end with you, Yaya. The Supreme Court has become increasingly salient to voters. The abortion question is critically important to that conversation. I think there's no question that the issue of abortion rights will play a large role in presidential and other elections. I know people who only voted for Donald Trump because of the abortion issue and because of his impact on the Supreme Court and funding for you know Planned Parenthood and what have you. So I think there is no question that that from from that you know perspective. And I think that a lot of people in the anti-abortion pro-life movement are happy with what they've seen happen under this administration. So I think that the people who voted for Donald Trump or who support life, support pro-life issues, will definitely keep that as a factor for the uh, 2020 election. I truly do believe that this is going to be a huge point in the 2020 election. And I think that it's going to continue to be an ongoing issue way past, you know, my time. I think that it's really, though, I, I would love to see in this world of politics, uh, politics in 2020, a separation between church and state. Thank you for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thanks, Thank you Terry. so much for having me. Thank you. It's been two decades since Philly had a women's pro hoops team. This gives them a perfect opportunity to play at a very high level. And they're looking for a few good women. We'll tell you more. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames on air Saturday evenings at 930 and Sunday mornings at 830. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the radio.com app. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets our region hot under the collar is our sports teams. We are all about our teams. It's been 21 years since we've had a professional women's basketball team. Do y'all remember the Philadelphia Rage? It was led by Olympics point guard Dawn Staley, and Philly was dominating. And then the ABL team got bought out by the WNBA, and it folded, creating a void in the city's women's pro hoops. Well, all of that is about to change. With me in the studio to discuss the history that is about to get made in Philadelphia is Tamika A. Milburn, owner and CEO of Playmakers Basketball Royalties, and Jamil Melvin, Chief Marketing Officer. Ladies, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. We're glad to be here. The buzz is starting to be created. Explain what's, what y'all about to do in Philadelphia. We are bringing the first professional women's basketball team to the city in over two decades, and we're super, super excited about it. The name is dope. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Please we're going to reign. We're going to reign. Exactly. Reign empowerment. We're going to reign women's <laughs> professionalism, community. community. Everything. It's, it's going to be a takeover. And it just, we're, we're royalty. It goes along with the PB Royalty, the Playmakers Basketball Royalties. So the <laughs> Philadelphia reign, they're kicking off. Y'all doing a lot here. Tell me why you decided that Philadelphia was right for a women's basketball team. This is my home. <laughs> I've done it in Atlanta, and we were very successful last season. The Atlanta Monarchs is actually the first professional women's team to bring a national title to the city. Um, and that was our first year. Um, we're really we're doing a lot of great things in the community, and I want to do it here because this is where I'm from. You brought the Atlanta Monarchs to how was it building 
<laughs> a, a team from the grassroots in a city like Atlanta. Well, city, city. I lived yeah. in Atlanta for five years. Yeah, okay. and you know there's a lot going on in Atlanta. So to be able to do it in Atlanta, you know, it, it, it's a lot of work. But, you know, one thing is that we had kind of already established ourselves with working with the kids and working in the community and things like that. It was just making sure we put the right pieces together, getting the right coach, getting the right players, and players who were buying into what we were trying to do within basketball, within women's basketball, and also with building girls' sports you know, outside of within basketball and outside of basketball. She started grassroots in the community first before starting a professional basketball team. And that, I think, is leads yeah. to the success that she's had with this women's professional team and bringing it to Philly. Exactly. And for me, it's kind of full circle because my sister is a retired WNBA player and legend, and she played with the Philadelphia Rage here in Philly, which is the last time I've been to Philly. <laughs> and that team, you know, so it's full circle. It's like a, a professional team is coming back. And so let's back up because I played bas- high okay. school <laughs> basketball, right? Uh-huh. And I remember... I remember there was no like the the right. WNBA came like right when I was graduating from high school. I think I was like maybe it came like my junior uh-huh. year. And before that, like I didn't play as hard as a freshman. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you didn't know. We didn't know. Like exactly. and it was like no options exactly. for girls. And I was like, well, why would I go to college? Hoof it up. Exactly. You know, like and do sentiments. all this work. And then exactly. have nothing to do. And then the NBA, I, I don't know if it was like 96. It was like, 97, 96. 96. And it's yes. funny because. My sister in the third grade said she was going to play a professional women's team in the United States. And we all thought she had lost her mind. <laughs> Literally. Because back then it was you could play overseas or you coach. Basically. That was the farthest women could go. And I was just like, oh, she tripping. <laughs> so I didn't, I, we all, as three of us girls, we all played basketball. We got state championship in high school. We played, but I didn't take it serious. I was like, you I mean, what can I, what can we do? But she said it and declared it and decreed it in third grade. There's going to be a professional women's team. In the United States, and and when we, I was a junior or a sophomore when the WNBA came out. At that point, I had, I didn't put a lot of effort in basketball. Yeah, but she yeah, never yeah. lost sight of yeah, that, yeah. so she was good. And she got drafted in '98, and that's when they were sweeping everybody yeah. up. They was like, "Where so, yeah. so the ladies at?" Where the ladies at? Spoken in existence. And so, what kind of happened though? If Philly had a team, and then it's been, the NBA bought it out, yeah. bought out the team, bought out, they, and then moved it. They, they didn't did, even they move did it. They did a dispersal draft. Yeah. My sister was fortunate enough to get drafted into the WNBA. Some of the players didn't. Some of them aged out at that yeah. point. So that's really what happened. So with it the just kind of went went away. It did. Um, when they got the news, because they were number one, Philadelphia was the number one team in ABL. They were going to win the championship that year, and one of, when they got the news, one of her teammates actually committed suicide when they folded when the league got bought out because wow. her family was depending on her. Wow, she was taking care of her whole family, but and she didn't see the vision that I could I could probably go to the WNBA or I could go overseas. She just thought this it is was it. over. It's over. Katrina Price was her name. We called her KP. She was from Texas. Wow. And then that's how serious basketball was for her. It was. And so now, you know, 20 years later, y'all bringing it back. Yep. We are bringing it back. And we're obviously providing more options. Tell me your strategy. There's a lot of pro athletes in the city of Atlanta, the city of Philadelphia, but they're not connecting personally with the kids. Our players are out there doing camps. They're in the schools. We're doing career days. Um, we're volunteering. A lot of them are volunteering their time to actually work in the community and connect with the, the community leaders to see, hey, tell us the need. Tell us what we need to do to get girls involved in sports. Because for me, like I said, I've never played basketball or any other sport, but it's a it's a tool that you can use. And, you know, like with any tool, if you use it properly, you can build anything. If you if you have it and you don't use it properly, then you end up with nothing, with rubble. You know, so we're in the community and we're teaching our girls, you know, all the kids how to use this tool to get to where you need to be. You know, and and we're making sure that they know that we really do care. We're here. You know, we have a lot of players who play overseas um, during the offseason. But then we also we always recruit. We're going to be recruiting players that are going to be here locally year round. 
so that they can just continue to have this presence and continue to let these girls know, let these kids know that we're here to, to kind of guide you and get you where you need to be. But we also have a vision to intersect politics, sports, <laughs> community, women's empowerment, families. Yeah. So when we say we're bringing a professional sports team to Philadelphia, that is going to consist of, of a connecting and intersecting all of these different avenues to become a staple, to become a brand that we're, we, we have influence in decision-making and policy-making and, and schools and families. So when she says community, yeah, it sounds broad, but we plan on making a foundation, a firm foundation, where we, where our team is connected. It's not just an entertainment source to come watch girls right. play basketball. And one of the ways I know that you all are getting connected with the community is you're going to be right out over at Chestnut Hill College. Yep. Yeah. Have a relationship with them. Yep. Tell and me what that relationship is. Yeah. That is actually awesome because, you know, Chestnut Hill, up until a few years ago, maybe about a decade ago, was an all-women's school. You know, they have the Sisters of St. Joseph over there, and they're really big about, again, empowering the community. So they've really been supportive, extremely supportive. And once they realize that, you know, what we were doing, we're not we're not just going to be like a fly-by-night, just come in there, you know, use them up and then leave. They know that we want to help build the city. So that connection has been awesome for us. Their coach, and I'm going to have to give him so much love. Like, as soon as he, I reached out to him, he said, this is awesome. And so y'all going to hold your games there, home yes. games. Mm-hmm. What league are y'all going to be in, and how is this going to work? It's called the Women's basketball development association we actually have professional players that you know play at the WNBA level and they can it we can actually like serve as like a feeder into the WNBA you know so so it's almost like um with i guess with baseball they have the minor the minor league yeah the minor leagues so this paid. is like it's a minor league team yes. you get paid people probably have other jobs as well do they have other jobs? They, they, play the they play basketball. That's what they so do. They have two, so they may play off-season someplace else. Players. Yeah, because our season runs concurrent with the WNBA. So after oh. our season ends, you know, our players, they, they return overseas. overseas. The same way the WNBA. So they play all year round yeah, for these the, players. Yeah, the women, most, all the women. Wow. My sister played overseas in WNBA yeah. 14 years. So she played over there during half the, half the year over here mm-hmm. the other half she of the would, year. Um, season starts here in May. She yeah. would come back in May. Play through August, September if they have playoffs, and then she get on the plane and go overseas for the rest of the year. She may come home for Christmas. Because our players get off the plane. <laughs> that's and, uh, a, that's yeah. what our women do. Yeah, our players get off the plane and they pretty much play that next week. Yeah. So yeah. And they so just how play. do we? How do we? Because I mean, so this is going to be a feeder for the WNBA. This is a job opportunity and a and an opportunity to play the sport you love, which doesn't always happen for women. That's what it represents. Yeah. So are y'all gonna let people try out? What's yeah, y'all we, we got to try out. March, March, March sixteenth. We're holding yes. tryouts at Chestnut Hill. So y'all, hopefully Spread y'all the word. If y'all got some ballers <laughs> that want to play, they want to get shape. paid. <laughs> yeah, right. Get in shape. And I will say that because <laughs> we have, we're going to have some WNBA league. legends in the league that's going to be judging and helping yeah. with our tryouts. So we're yeah. very connected. You know, I worked with the Women's NBA for a couple of years, um, and I'm a certified WNBA agent. You know, eventually, this Philadelphia Reign probably will have a WNBA beside it. Yeah. yeah. That's and so the, that's what y'all trying that's, to do. That's, that's a future that's goal. The, so, yeah, yeah. so get in with us early. Don't, don't come, so, so don't come to us later when we had a WNBA beside us. See, Cherry, she, she already has a front right. VIP courtside <laughs> lifetime <laughs> season ticket. Right. She, she saw the vision and she invited us and jumped on it. Right. You know, it's, okay. it's important to get in at the grassroots yep. level. No, because y'all see. saw women winning and dominating. There's yeah. only... You know, I mean, look, and you Temple know, went Temple went to the big leagues. Yep, you right. know, they took yep. their team yep. 
from one league to the next league. And I mean, you, I mean, it's not, it, it's definitely doable. It is. And then when you think about it, there's not that many WNBA teams out there, but there are a lot of players who can play at the WNBA level. There's just not a spot for them. This gives them a perfect opportunity to play at a very high level, be very, very competitive. And again, be around, you know, people who actually love the sport, love what we're bringing to the city. Is a really, really good Which also helps the girls overseas. Yes. Because yeah. it also gets helps increase their overseas yep. salaries and their overseas contracts. And that's what I wanted to shift to because the business model. Because yeah. people don't value women's <laughs> sports as much. And I'm talking about that coin. Yeah. The thing is, a lot of people go in, start the controversy behind the money and the salary because the men get paid this. But I, working within the WNBA and working in operations and working behind the scenes and not being a player, I understand why. Mm -hmm. You have to make money in order to receive the money. So we can't pay those salaries if we aren't making it. And people forget the NBA, you know how long it took for the NBA to make money? 30 years. Mm -hmm. It took 30 years for them to get, to make a profit and to get to where they're at. 30 years. So we have to keep that in mind as well. So no, they're not making millions. But you have to understand there it is profitable and you can make a, a decent living salary. Like right. my sister made really good money versus I mean, I'm like, oh my God, I'm working a nine to five and you're making XYZ to play basketball. So it's still <laughs> it's not as bad, but no, they're not making millions. Right. They make yeah. they may make millions overseas in Russia and different countries when they play on um, those overseas contracts. But for the money aspect, we just have to bring in the dollars and people have to support it because there's only three streams of revenue. Yeah. That's yeah. full season tickets, apparel, mm-hmm. which I don't know how many of y'all see people wearing WNBA clothes and right. women's basketball clothes, but apparel and a TV contract. That's basically the revenue Well, your stream. job, honey bun, is is, is, is big, Miss <laughs> Jamel. Tell her again. Your job, because you need to make on. some stars. You need to be a queen maker over here. Well, you mm-hmm. know, the thing is, Tell I'm excited again. because I, I had the opportunity <laughs> to, to see what didn't work in the women's NBA. Right. So I'm a secret threat. I know what worked and what didn't work. And I work. actually think Philly is a good space to make some queens. Yes, because you get the support behind. I mean, Philly love you through thick and thin (laughs) type of stuff. They and do. they will they support their people. I mean, they do. We that's yeah. why it's so exciting to come back. And yeah. To be able, because I like I tell everybody, you don't understand the people in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia market. Like, yeah, we're a different breed of people. And they say it all year throughout the country. You know, Philly fans this and Philly fans that. But we stick by our teams and we yeah. support each other. And that's why it's so exciting to be able to come back here well, and do this. It all starts as a dream, ladies. It, it all starts as a <laughs> dream. And, and people have to come out and with women's sports and and. Pay Pay the money and support mm-hmm, they it. Do. They have to come and 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 stuff like that. And I I feel like that's the because people forget like right. when the NBA started and I was shocked they was not when the NFL started. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they right. had raggedy uh, yeah. uniforms <laughs> and they had busted up. You know what I'm saying? It did. They wasn't did. making money they like were. that. No. A lot of the old school players was not like you know what I'm saying. Now it's like huge, yep. but it's like how do you take you know women's basketball? And take it to that level. But I'm predicting, you know, I give y'all like a five-year situation. That's, and that's, that's our five-year five plan. Year plan. <laughs> you know, I give oh, y'all a five-year five year situation. Plan. Yep. Yep. Okay, y'all have a big press conference coming up mm-hmm. on March 15th. Mm-hmm. And then on the 16th trials, tell people where they can get y'all socks together. Get y'all hot tops together. <laughs> I hope y'all <laughs> like. <laughs> I hope y'all in shape. And, then and like, I would say this too. One of the things that we do with the teams, you know, because we've had um, college kids and they, they that are graduating and they feel intimidated when they look at the roster of our Atlanta Monarchs. It is, it is WM. It's professional women. Period. Yeah. 
But one of the things that we make sure that we do, at least we draft, we bring in at least one or two kids coming out of college because we want them to be around and the not professional be intimidated. Players. Right. We want them to be mentored by them. You know, like I said, our coach in Atlanta, WNBA coach, yeah. he has a couple of Olympic gold medals. Our coach that's coming here played in the WNBA. Marinelle Meadows is our State. Atlanta coach. So yeah. we're not doing anything less. We're not money hungry, but we want to have value and quality. Right. Yeah. And, we're, and we're going to plant seeds. We want your family there. We want your kids there. We want your grandma there. You know, because the games are family friendly and they're fun. So tell people where they could do tryouts. You can get the information for tryouts on all of our social media. Uh, media is at Philadelphia Rain. I believe it's on Twitter at Philly Rain. Um, but it's at Philadelphia Rain. Tryouts will be on March 16th at Chestnut Hill College. And you can sign up. Just click on the link on the social media page. Wonderful. And Rain is spelled R-E-I-G-N, y'all. Not the drops that come oh from the sky. <laughs> all right. So I just want to say I wish you the, the best. Thank you so much to Tamika A. Milburn. And thank you so much to Jamel Melvin for thank coming you. on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank, thank you. you. Next up, working to stop intimate partner violence against men. This impacts everyone. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. Philly is known for its restaurants and delicious cuisine. At the same time, it's also known as a city of action, where movers and shakers stand up to make a difference. Well, the two are blending together at the 11th annual Dish It Up event as the city's leading female chefs unite to serve up support for victims of domestic violence. Here to tell us all about it is Senior Communications Specialist with Women Against Abuse, Ms. Katie Young-Wilds. Katie, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. So this is an annual thing. This is a big deal. It is. This is our 11th year hosting Dish It Up, and it's bringing together some of Philadelphia's best female chefs to raise support for survivors of intimate partner violence. Wonderful. And this is a big issue uh, intimate partner violence, and and it's kind of been missed with the Me Too movement. But uh, tell, give us a little bit of background of what women against abuse, what, what you guys do. Sure, yeah, this is a really pervasive issue. The Philadelphia police respond to 100,000 911 calls a year for domestic violence. So this impacts one in four women, one in 10 men. Chances are, if you're listening, it's impacting someone that you know. And so Women Against Abuse, we are Philadelphia's leading domestic violence service provider. We operate the only emergency safe havens for people experiencing abuse who need to literally flee their homes to be safe. And we also operate one of the nation's first legal centers with a staff of experienced attorneys who represent victims in family court for free as they seek to break out of relationships that are dangerous. And so let's explain what is abuse. Sure. So abuse can take a lot of forms. Um, The most obvious is physical, being attacked by a partner. Um, But there's also verbal abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse, and psychological. A lot of these types of abuse will co-occur in relationships. So someone might first experience verbal put-downs all the time, a lot of controlling behavior, um, finances that are controlled. They can't access their own money. They can't even work. And then it might escalate to physical violence and sexual violence. So um, every situation is different. But domestic violence, it's not an anger management issue. It's all about one partner seeking power and control over the other. Wonderful. And so this is, it affects, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women. It really does. And men. And men. That's right. In fact, we um, just recently in with the start of 2019, 
made the decision that our emergency safe havens are now going to serve survivors of all gender identities. So for more than 40 years, Women Against Abuse, as our name implies, was serving women in our safe havens. And although our legal center and our transitional housing programs served men, our shelters did not. And so we did a lot of internal discussions and focus groups with survivors and a lot of planning to prepare to serve survivors of all genders and make sure that we're a welcoming refuge for anyone experiencing this issue. Yeah. And what did you find about men? Is this, I mean, we heard, uh, we, we started to see this, uh, men coming out and saying that they had been abused. Is this more pervasive than most of us would, would actually know? You know, there's not a ton of research yet on it, but we do know that about one in 10 men experience Um, physical violence, sexual violence, or stalking from an intimate partner. And so that's not even looking into verbal, psychological, financial. That's just the the physical, sexual, and stalking pieces. Um, So we we think this is going to be a year where we learn, you know, what, how pervasive is this in Philadelphia in terms of affecting survivors who are men? Um, We think the issue does still disproportionately affect women, though, um, studies have shown that 85% of victims um, are women, but, you know, the research is, is not quite caught up to where we are as a society. Yeah, and this in the, this type of um, intimate partner violence, it doesn't matter orientation, identity, or what have you, gender orientation, or, you know, whatever. It, this is for all people. Absolutely. Yeah. Domestic violence impacts everyone. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, a man, a woman, if you are in a same-sex relationship, um, if you're gender fluid, you know, this impacts everyone. Yeah. And so Dish It Up is a sort of way to have fun and to pay because this is not operating these safe houses. It costs money. It costs a lot of money. Um, and our shelters are the only ones in Philadelphia providing this service. So they're really crucial, really important. And this year at Dish It Up, we're going to be focusing a lot on rebuilding after abuse and We'll be showing guests a video um, that that demonstrates the many ways survivors have to rebuild once they have finally been able to break free from an abusive relationship, all the barriers and challenges that confront them, the need for safe housing, access to a living wage job, child care, all of the steps that it takes. Because a lot of times they leave everything. Absolutely. I mean, we have people that show up with a diaper bag or a purse, you know, and that's all they had time to grab. They just got their children and they got out. And so we're there walking with them on this journey, but we need the community's support. And so you're going to bring all these women chefs in. Yes, we have a really exciting lineup. We have 20 women chefs um, and something for everyone. So we have savory competitors. We have sweet competitors. We have um, folks coming Mm. from Park. We have a delicious pastry chef from Park. We have someone coming from Jaminera, which is part of Marcy Turney's um, restaurant group. We have... um, just so many, so many folks. We have vegan options, kosher options. So we're really excited about it. We have returning champions like Poi Dog Philly coming, who won the 2016 competition. And um, the chefs are competing. We, ha- we actually have a panel of judges with a lot of food critics and local celebrities who choose the winners of the night in the savory and sweet categories. Wonderful. So we're really excited about that. So people can buy tickets, right? Yes, tickets are $125, and um, for the first time, we're offering a $75 um, young professional fee, and that is all available on our website, womenagainstabuse.org. 
So I would encourage listeners to get out there, get their tickets soon, because we do expect to sell out. And they're available at womenagainstabuse.org. Wonderful. And the event is March 21st at VI. That's right. March 21st. It's a Thursday night. And um, the location is just beautiful. It's at Broad and Spring Garden, so it's easy to access. And everything's donned in purple, which is the color of the anti-domestic violence movement. So guests can come in, walk the purple carpet entryway, get photographed by Hugh Dillon, and have a purple cocktail. Um, Purple cocktails. We have a lot of purple going on. (laughs) We actually have um, a signature purple cocktail this year in memory of the late Katie Loeb. She was a mixologist who was a part of Dish It Up for so many years. So we're honoring her memory this year with the cocktail. Absolutely wonderful. So check out Dish It Up. Proceeds go to help women against abuse do all the wonderful work that they do. You can check them out, womenagainstabuse.org, March 21st. Get a ticket. Thank you so much to Katie Young-Wilds for coming into Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. We appreciate it. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As 19th century historian Alexis de Tocqueville says, nothing is more As 19th century historian Alexis de Tocqueville once said, nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.